So if you keep your Bibles at chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, so we look at Jesus. There's a slide somewhere there. It's not many slides, but it's only, it's back there somewhere. I don't know if any of us have watched the reality show Undercover Boss. It's been on TV for about 10 years or so, and it's coming out with a new season for those that are into it. Uh, it was something really not normal when it first came out, and it was interesting when people first began to tune in. And I guess after 10 years, there's still people that find it interesting. It's about senior executives that go undercover, and they work as an entry-level employee to get a sense of what the, their employees really think of them and what changes need to happen with the organization. I've heard a lot about pastors in the past that dressed up like homeless people and walk into the church they were pastoring and no one knew who they were. So they really did this undercover boss type of thing. But I've said all this to say that Jesus humbled himself by coming to live on earth among us, identifying with us as human beings, every human struggle that we have, anything that you can imagine that humanity goes through, Jesus experienced that. That's what the Philippians 2 passage is all about. He was kind of like an undercover boss. And when we look at the Gospel of Mark, especially the first half of the Gospel of Mark, the, the main central question is, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? Throughout Mark's gospel, even those devoted to following Jesus are kept in the dark about who Jesus is. They have no clue until you get to chapter 8 and 9 and then they begin to ask some questions there. And they still are in the dark about this person that's standing in front of them. We have the easy answer. It's Jesus. It's the Son of God. But for the Jewish mind to look at a human being and say, that's God, that was phenomenal. That was out of the question for them. There's no way that God will be dressed in the flesh. Because the Messiah that they were looking for was somebody like King David. Power, might, authority, governmental, and all the rest of that. But not that God would himself dress up in human garb. That wasn't what they were expecting. The thing about Mark's gospel is that Jesus came to take over right from the beginning verse that Pastor Betty spoke about last week. Verse 1, Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right there, right from the beginning of verse, he's letting us in on the story. We are not in the dark as readers. The people in the story are in the dark, but we are not in the dark. You know right from the get-go that Jesus Christ is God come down from heaven. Right from the beginning of Mark's gospel. There is a regime change. Things are coming into place. It's not about toppling the governments of our day or the governments about Jesus' day. It's about the reign of God coming from heaven to earth and it began to rule when Jesus became flesh. That's the gospel. That's what God wants us to get excited about. See, it's only Jesus, the narrator, that's Mark, and we, the readers, that see what's happening. Did you ever watch a show where you know who the bad guy is, but he seems to be portrayed as a good guy in the discussion of the people in the drama, but we that are on the outside looking in say, don't they get it yet? <laughs> don't trust him. <laughs> and what does the person do? They trust him and they fall back into it. That's what's going on when we read the gospel. We know what's going on, but the characters in the gospel do not know completely what's going on. 
Mark lets us have a glimpse from heaven's vantage point. He lets you in on the story, and he demands a response from us that read it. We're not just reading it for historical purposes or for good teaching purposes or to get our sentimental, emotional feelings up and down. We're reading it because we need to respond to it. And the way that we respond to it, Pastor Betty touched upon last week, is through repentance and faith. And that results in commitment and change. So it's not just repentance and faith and stop. It's repentance and faith that moves over to commitment, change, transformation, trusting the Lord for the rest of your life. Hello? You follow me? So now we come to Jesus' baptism. And it's the first appearance of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. He's traveled from Nazareth to the Jordan, where John happens to be, who happens to be his cousin, was baptizing the repentance. The coming one arrives not from a sophisticated capital city, like Jerusalem, but he comes from a backwards village in Galilee called Nazareth. The arrival of the more powerful one is really uh, kind of a, takes you back a bit because when John was preaching at the Jordan, you're expecting a big pomp and circumstance type of entry, right? Like, did Jesus have any PR people to do his publicity? Look, this is going to be a fantastic service. You better tune in tomorrow because this is what's going to happen. None of that. None of that. Jesus just arrived from a backward village that nobody even heard about, not even mentioned in the Old Testament, Nazareth. And Jesus comes there as an ordinary person, without majestic and triumph, sounds of music and trumpets blowing. He comes in true undercover fashion. True undercover fashion. But he's going to arrive on the scene not like the other Gospels. Did you notice that? No genealogies, no who begat who. Mark gets right to the main character of the story. It's about Jesus, my friends. It's about Jesus. Don't get sidetracked by what's on the latest playlist of your Apple Music or your Spotify account. Don't get sidetracked by Tony Robbins' inspirational preachers that speak to your needs. This is about Jesus, is it not? The good news about Jesus Christ. So, John was powerful, but the coming one is more powerful. So, in, John, in Mark's mind, when he's talking about John the Baptist being powerful, he's saying, why waste any ink with all those genealogies when let's get to the main part of the story? Let's talk about Jesus. So, that's not beat around the bush. So, he prepares, John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus now, Jesus arrives on the scene because he's going to prepare the way for us. John could not prepare the way for us. Only Jesus can prepare the way for us to bring God's promises to fulfillment and to their climax point. This baptism of Jesus, as we zoom in on the baptism of Jesus, is about a moment of decision for Jesus himself as our representative. He had to decide to be baptized by John the Baptist. It's a moment that we also are called into as its readers to make a decision, do I, am I willing to be baptized like Jesus was baptized? Do, have I come to that decisive moment in my life where I'm going to say no to the world and yes to Jesus? No to the kingdoms of this world and yes to the kingdom of God that's broken into our midst. You see that 
We, we might say that Jesus, the undercover, the pure, the holy, the spotless, the blameless, use whatever language you want to use there. Why would he go through a baptism of forgiveness? Remember that we said many times in here that the gospel is not repent and you will be forgiven. The gospel is you are forgiven, therefore repent. It's not you that gains repentance from God. It's God has already forgiven you. And you just have to accept that forgiveness. Because it's not something that leads to your forgiveness. God has forgiven you in the cross of Jesus Christ. Already done. Finished. So it's a moment of decision. And then it's a moment of identification. This is why Jesus is baptizing. Because he's identifying fully with humanity. Fully with who we are. He doesn't need to repent. But he did come to identify fully with the human race with human beings someone noticed this and maybe you'll get it when i give this illustration a man might find himself possessing ease and comfort and wealth and still identify himself with a movement to bring better things to the dawn downtrodden and the poor and the ill house and the underpaid in other words a guy can be rich and live in this type of level of society yet he comes down and he still wants to help the poor so even though jesus was sinless he knew that we were sinful and, he, and because we were sinful, he was willing to come off his throne and enter our world so that he may redeem us and sanctify us through his coming. You follow me? See, Jesus' identification with humanity is not for his own sake, it's for our sake. Isn't this true what the undercover boss TV shows about? It's not for his sake that he's coming down. It's to make the life of the employees a little bit better in that manufacturing plant or wherever type of work they are engaged in. It's for their sake. And then we read that part about the heavens opened. It's really ripped apart. It's torn apart. It's split apart, which should lead you to think about what happens at Jesus' death. Because we're readers of this. Gospel of Mark, and we've been let in on the story. Nothing's of a surprise to us. And Pastor Betty read that verse. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and the mountains would tremble before you. 64.1 of the prophetic book of Isaiah. But it's not a, a vision. He doesn't see the throne room of heaven. It's not like Peter having the vision. It's not like Stephen having the vision and seeing the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. It's not even like John the Revelator where he sees the door open and he's seen them worshiping the Lamb. It's none of that. It's more in line with the Exodus account where God came down and was with Moses and the people. And the people. God came down, rend the heavens and come down, God. And that's what's happening in Jesus' baptism. God came down and was amongst his people. The open heavens also, we're a sign that there's a voice speaking to Jesus. So we know that there was a moment of decision. We know there was a moment of identification, but it's also a moment of approval. And that's why that voice from heaven belonging to the Father, he utters these words, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It's enthronement speech from Psalm 2 verse 7. Also from Isaiah 42 verse 1. It's enthronement speech. Did you notice that Jesus didn't do any miracles yet here? He hasn't walked on water yet. He hasn't healed anybody yet. He hasn't done any great teachings yet. He hasn't done any of that. And he already received the approval of the Father. 
You already received the affirmation of the Father. You already received the acceptance of the Father. You don't have to do anything to receive the approval, affirmation, or acceptance of the Father. You just have to believe and trust in Him. Hello? Why do we think that we have to do all those things before God approves of us? That's why we teach many times that at your baptism, we pray that we, you hear these words. You are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased, not because of the works you do, because of who you are. Who you are. A voice of approval, a voice of affirmation, a voice of acceptance that's badly needed in our day. People are struggling with all these three A words. Approval, acceptance, affirmation. And sometimes affirmation is not enough. Because affirmation says, well, he's a good teacher, or she's a good preacher, and they're a good whatever they do. But affirming your talents is not the same as I accept you as a person. Hello? Affirming you as a person is not the same as me accepting you as a person. Acceptance says, whatever you are, I accept you. Boy, does our society need that. Eh? Our society really needs that. The church needs that, my friends. Let's get right down to the, where the rubber hits the roll. The church needs that. Not only affirming each other, saying good for you and good for her and good for him, but I accept you. I accept you. Jesus might be the undercover God to those along the Jordan, but he's not the undercover God to you. You're let in on the story. There shouldn't be any brain smashing around the walls of the church to figure this out. It's plain as day in this passage. So, a moment of decision, a moment of identification, a moment of approval, and ex- affirmation and acceptance, and then you just don't stay in the waters and keep on hearing the voice of God forever. Then there's a moment of being equipped for God by the mission, for the mission. And that's the picture of the dove. The dove descending, which represents the spirit of the living God. Which represents the anointing of God coming upon Jesus, you know, especially Isaiah chapter 61. If you read the book of Mark, start to read the book of Isaiah as well. And you get to see how those things overlap and bring, come out to fulfillment Remember John's message about the axe laid to the root of the tree? Uh, 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 and and it's, it's contrast with the message of Jesus. Because no longer is the axe at the root of the tree. Rather, it's a picture of a dove. And a picture of a dove is something gentle, something full of love, something caring, something that, that, that would lead to embrace us rather than say, boy, this guy's taking the axe at the root of my life and he's going to chop it. <laughs> right? It's not about that. Remember the words of the prophet, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord, God of hosts. This dove is a sign of a new beginning, because the wilderness is a place of new beginnings. This sign is a new beginning like Noah. Remember Noah, the flood came, the world was in catastrophe, it was in chaos, and they waited for a sign, and they waited for a sign, and then I know we know the rainbow, but there was the sign of the dove, that came and says, now you can start to build again. Now we can start to have a new covenant with Noah. Start it again. Noah was like a new Adam, and Jesus is like the ultimate Adam, right? The second Adam, Paul calls him. And the dove was a sign that I am with you. I'm going to take care of you. There is the reality of a new, a new 
a new creation. The old has passed away, the Apostle Paul said, and behold, everything has become new. How new you are new? How new are you in Christ? Tongue twister there. How new are you in Christ? So we have that beautiful scene of the baptism, and we zoom down in on it, and then he quickly takes us, his favorite word, immediately. Immediately. And if you really read Mark and you pay attention to the words in Mark, everything is incomplete. He never finishes it. So for all those teachers that said incomplete sentence, incomplete sentence, I just read Mark all my life. (laughs) Incomplete. No, learn your grammar. At once, no sooner was the moment of glory, decision, identification, approval, and being equipped for mission over that Jesus is driven out into battle, into the wilderness. The undercover God, after being baptized in the flesh, faces the enemy of our souls, Satan, the devil. We've heard this story before. It's the Exodus story. It's the crossing the Jordan River story. We should be familiar of this. That's why we said since we came here six years ago, know your Old Testament if you really want to understand the New Testament. Don't just push the Old Testament aside and say that's not for us no more. No. It's there for a reason so you can understand the complete story of who God is and what God's will is for your life. But Jesus came not to deliver mankind from another tyrant like the Pharaoh. He came to deliver you from Satan, the author of evil. (laughs) He came to deliver you from a bondage to sin, and he wants to bring you into the fullness of life that Christ has for you as he ministers under the anointing of the Spirit, the Spirit that he wants to share with us too. It's the Spirit that brings Jesus into the wilderness. Just like God delivered Moses from Pharaoh and they crossed the Red Sea and after that moment of freedom, where did they end up in? The wilderness. The wilderness. Some people don't want to go from a mountaintop to the valley, but friends, I'm telling you, in life, that's a reality. That's a reality. You know, they want to just stay there forever and ever, amen, but once in a while, you got to get down and you got to go through your wilderness. You got to go through your wilderness. Jesus did. It's impossible to escape the assault of the enemy in this world. Hello? One person said, temptations are not set to make us fall. They are sent to strengthen us. Hello? You know, the devil may be doing, no. The temptations come to strengthen you, that you become like Christ. It's not to ruin us, but for our good, which we emerge better warriors in the kingdom of God. I'm not talking about picking up missiles and the weapons of this world. I'm talking about the weapons of God. Love, joy, peace, self-control, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness. Mark's account of Jesus' wilderness experience is not filled out like the other gospel writers. Mark, again, is very short and very brief and very incomplete. There's no fasting here. There's no hunger going on. There's no three-point debate with the enemy There isn't even a sense of victory. Did Jesus win this battle in the desert or didn't he? He's just thrust into a a battle with the enemy. It's almost like a UFC, ultimate fighting challenge match. That's what's going on all of a sudden. And and the word that they use that he's he's driven out is the word ekbalo, which is the same word that they use when Jesus casts demons from people. He casts them up with force right into the wilderness. And there he is with Satan. Doing battle. No blow by blow comment 
in Mark's gospel. It's Jesus in one corner and Satan in the other. Just like watching a fight match. In this corner, I present to you the master of evil, Satan. In this corner, I present to you the Son of God who's come to love you and give you life to the full. That's the scenario that Mark is drawing for us here. And in the gallery, there's angels somewhere, and there's wild beasts somewhere. So wild beasts, angels, Jesus, and Satan. I think we get a clue that who has the victory from the writings of the Apostle John. What did Jesus come for? To destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. The works that keep you from living a godful life. The works that come to seek, to kill, and to destroy. The works that prevent you from living that holy, righteous, blameless life that God has called you into. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and he did that on the cross. He did that. Mark is also introducing to you something that's quite familiar throughout his gospel, the warfare between evil and Satan and the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. The many casting out demonic uh, spirits throughout the gospel, it's laced throughout there. This is an introduction. Learn to read the gospel of Mark. We can only imagine the dialogue between the two in Mark. As one commentator was saying, Satan was saying to Jesus, Use your power to blast men, obliterate your enemies, win the world by might and power and bloodshed. And God says to Jesus, set up a reign of love. And Satan says to Jesus, set up a dictatorship of force. And Jesus had to make a decision, just like we have to make a decision. Is it by force, like the enemy, Satan, or is it by divine love, like Jesus? A couple of weeks ago in our midweek study, we talked uh, about a comment made by a theologian that said, love is not all you need. A take on the Beatles song, love is all you need. But he's speaking to the Christian church. See, because he, he, he thinks that we've watered down the love of Jesus. We've turned it into some emotional slush, sentimental uh, feelings, and we've divorced it from the cross of Jesus Christ. To understand the love of God, you can only understand it through the cross. If you try to understand love without a cross, you're missing the biblical foundation of agape love, unconditional love. Do you follow me? Do you understand how dangerous it is when we try to define love in the way that the romantic novels define love instead of how the gospel defines love? It took a cross, and someone called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to die in our place for us to truly understand what love is, what love is. So, love is not all you need if you're thinking of the worldly definition of love. Jesus spent 40 days, as Pastor Betty said, in the wilderness battling the enemy. That's a long time, huh? I mean, that's all. No, 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 no internet, no newspaper, nothing. Just him, the devil, the wild beast, and the angels for 40 days. Can you handle that? Can you handle that? There are other people that spent 40 days. We know Moses spent 40 days. 
We know Elijah spent 40 days to receive, and he received strength from an angel. He got a meal from the angel or a bird. And we have this, this scene of angels, and we kind of ask the question, what about the angels? What's their role in our life? What was their role in Moses' and Elijah and Jesus' life? See, we kind of assume that the angels are there to pre- prevent me from getting tested. That when, I, when it gets too close to getting temp- tempted, tempted or tested, that the angels come in, they intervene for us, and we get off the hook. No, they're not. They're not there to keep you from getting tested. Were they there preventing Jesus from dying on the cross? They were there, but did they intervene? It says, no, you can't kill him. He's the son of God. No, they stood back. But they're not doing nothing. They are doing something. They're still comforting us. They are encouraging us. They are ministering to us. That's what the whole idea of angels means, ministering messengers of God. They did assure Jesus that his beloved father was watching over him, was there with him, was loving him, acting through him, pouring out his spirit all the time in and through him. Jesus went the way all his people must go. And he could do it because he heard the words of love and the words of life. I want to emphasize life. When I, when I quoted John 10.10 10, that the, the enemy, the devil, comes to seek, to kill, to destroy, but I have come to give you life and life to the fullest. Do you understand the life you have in Jesus Christ? You know, the, the old Orthodox Greeks would have said that the energies of God. It's something powerful. It motivates you. It excites you. It doesn't mean everything's going nice and rosy in my life, but there's something within me that is energized by the power of God, by the Spirit of God. And that's where we get our word work from, from the work energy. Do you sense that in your life? Life. I'm living life. I'm dying, but I'm living life. I never asked my parents to be born anyway. And I didn't ask God. I didn't ask them, you know, when I die, how come I have to die? I just came into being, and I have to live with what's been handed me. But I thank God I have somebody who identifies with my humanity completely and is with me and sends his angels to minister to me, even though I know one day I will die in the flesh. But one day I will be raised. This body will be raised. And I'm looking forward to that day. And it's all because this guy called Jesus, this undercover God, stepped into my human garb and set the path for me. See, John's pathway is not enough. That whole discussion at Ephesus and Acts, it's all about that. John's baptism is not enough for you. You must go through the baptism that Jesus went through. See, it's that life that keeps me going towards Jesus' coming. (laughs) This is not a Christian guy, Simon Sinek. He says, we achieve more when we chase the dream instead of the competition. Hello? We achieve more when we chase the dream that God has given to us and his son than worrying about all the circus that goes on in church institutions. You follow me? We chase the vision of God. The only illusion we can gather from the text is that Jesus could have not have survived without divine aid. Here's the lesson we all learn from this scene. Utter dependence on God is the way of the baptized. Utter dependence on God. The onslaught of Satan, the accuser, the slander, is strongest after the moment and delight of revelation. When we submit to God in baptism, we also shall be equipped as Jesus was with the Spirit to be sent out into the desert, our own deserts, and be attended 
by angels. You remember Elisha? Not Elijah, but Elisha. You remember him and his servant? They were stuck in Dotham, and the enemies were pressing in on them, and there seemed to be no way of escape. And then and, and, uh, Elijah tells the, his understudy, his his student there, and he says, you know, there's more of us than of them. But to the young guy, he's flipping out because as far as he's concerned, there's more of them than there are of us. And we feel that in the world that we are in right now as Christians, a lot of us feel like, boy, we can't see the forest for the trees. All we see is the enemy. And we eyes haven't been opened like Jesus. We have not seen that there's more of us than of them. And then Elisha prays for his young man's eyes to be opened. And then he began to saw the horses and the chariots of fire which belong to God. And he said, wow, what a mighty God we serve. Hello? Hello? With all that negativity going on, that circus act going on in the church and in the governments and in the states and in the countries around the world, we need to turn our eyes towards Jesus at this time. That's what Mark's trying to get our attention. Look! Look at the main character. Forget all that side circus stuff. In the end, the wilderness was not merely a place of margins, outskirts of civilization. It marked the place of new beginnings. COVID is not the end. It's the mark of a new beginning for the people of God that are willing to turn their eyes to the rent, split, torn apart heaven and behold the voice of God speaking to them. I read Samuel again this week in one of my regular readings and how Eli told them, you know, go there and listen to God. And, And we all know the verse. Lord, speak for your servant is listening. I think that's what Mark's trying to get our attention. As the worship team comes forward, I pray, I pray that you would read Mark in the way that it's meant to be read. Read Isaiah. Understand where Mark is coming from. And if he doesn't finish the story, maybe there's a reason that you need to stop and pray about how that applies to your own life. But you know, there has to be a moment of decision. There has to be a moment of, of identifying. Now, now, Jesus identified with, with us. Now we have to identify with him, right? And then that moment of approval and affirmation, of acceptance, and that moment when the Spirit comes, and I haven't been left powerless to live the Christian life, but I have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift. It's a gift. And then be ready to be ekbalo thrown into the wilderness. But you're not alone. God's angels will help you in a time of need. Let us stand.